Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, Stand Your Ground, Race, Gender, and Privilege in America. Our guest is Dr. Caroline Light. She is the Director of Undergraduate Studies and a Senior Lecturer on the Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Harvard University. Her book, Stand Your Ground, a history of America's love affair with lethal self-defense, a critical genealogy of our nation's ideals of armed citizenship. Let's welcome Dr. Caroline Light. Welcome, Dr. Light. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, in your book, on that note, you talk about do-it-yourself uh, self-defense. You call it DIY. Yeah. And and I think we saw some of that on January 6th. Um, at the at the Capitol, and we've seen some of that in the streets uh, of our nation. Um, give me your thoughts on those. I have I don't even know where to start, except I feel like this is all of these violent um, and racially and gender injustice laden practices coming home to roost for us. Uh, we live in a nation that has you know, ever since its very beginnings, uh, concentrated the power and the legal justification for lethal violence into the hands of disproportionately white men. And here we are now where our former president was explicitly calling upon, quote, good citizens to arm themselves and to to stand by, stand by, as I believe when he told one white armed militia movement, stand by. Um, stand he, back and stand by. Stand back and stand by, which, you know, I think, I think all members of that organization knew exactly what they were being told. It was like a dog whistle, except even more obvious that what the former president was trying to do was to uh, remind certain citizens that they have not just a right, but an obligation to use firearms to push their agenda and to obtain their political ends. And what we saw in this horrific attack on, on January 6th, I think, was the culmination of, of, of self-defensive violence as a weapon in the hands of disproportionately uh, white men pushing for an agenda of white supremacy. Um, and so for me, it's not all that surprising. It is incredibly tragic. And I'll admit something to you also. Uh, when I wrote this book, I, I naively thought that we as a nation were starting to understand that the weaponization of self-defense is a problem. I thought at the time this book came out that states would resist stand your ground laws, that they would be repealed and that we would start to, to realize just how much more dangerous our nation is as a result of this thinking, I was wrong. I mean, after I published this book, multiple other states passed Stand Your Ground laws and Florida's Stand Your Ground law became even more radically out of sync with, uh, with justice. And gun sales have exploded. I mean, absolutely. Last year, um, 2020 was an unprecedented year of gun sales. Um, and, and, and I will say too, our nation does not have a reliable system of even tracking how many people own guns. So we don't even actually know for certain 
who was buying those new guns or who, who was, whether they were new gun owners or just the same people buying those guns, we suspect through survey data that uh, a significant portion of last year's gun buyers were new gun purchasers. And but women? We don't know for certain. And women. Anecdotally, anecdotally, I'm hearing that from uh, gun stores that there was a significant portion of women purchasing guns, some for the first time, and a significant portion of non-white people purchasing guns as well. And so taken together, the message there is that these are groups of people who, given the political turmoil, the, the economic uh, and, and, and police violence, all of that taken together, was driving these groups of people who feel themselves to be targeted by so much violence, the, the uptick in hate crimes too, ever since you know the past four years. I believe there are many groups of people who started to feel like guns are the only solution to that sense of precarity mm -hmm. and that they too saw the gun as their only pathway to safety, which says a lot about the nation. Right. Well, the NRA, according to them, a good citizen is an armed citizen. Absolutely. Now, with all this gun violence, with, you know, the Sandy Hooks, the, uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, you know, it seems logical that um, there should be some, at least some peripheral limits on uh, assault weapons. And there was at one point in time, the assault weapons ban was let to lapse. Um, but there are some organizations besides the NRA and um, you cite one in your book, the Jewish, um, the Jewish Association with regards to um, Holocaust and genocide. And, and they're saying, no, you can't take the guns away because that protects people from hide. And they bring in, they also bring in the Armenian genocide, which is, you know, which myself being Armenian, I'm familiar with. Um, but I mean, is that too broad a brush that they're painting? I would say absolutely. Um, this, I think, is part of our nation's narrative. And obviously, like you mentioned, this is a, this is a, a global, I would say a global distortion of history. When um, organizations that are very much in favor of unfettered gun rights um, state that guns are the only solution to genocide, or that guns are the only pathway to collective safety and security. What it feels like they're doing to me is trying to take our histories and twist them in a way that convinces our wider population that, oh, if only uh, the Jews in Germany had firearms, they would not have been subjected to the Holocaust when that doesn't quite seem, it doesn't quite square with what actually happened in history, that a mass genocide like that, or the Armenian genocide, that if there had only been more guns in the hands of those targeted, that they would have been able to resist uh, those. Um, well, the Armenians, they had, the Armenians had their guns gathered up um, by the Turkish, uh, the Ottoman Turks. So they were pretty much left defenseless. Right. But I, I think this is just a situation of black and white here. We're talking about um, 
these large magazines that kill thousands of people in just, you know, a matter of minutes, yes. hundreds of people, and yeah. potentially thousands in a matter of minutes, versus versus what I think uh, happened during these genocides. And they're military weapons. I mean, these are high-tech military weapons when you talk about automatics or semi-automatic ARs and things like that. So it's a matter of scale, too. So um, what you say about disarmament is true also with the Holocaust. I mean, so, and it's also true in the Jim Crow era that there were jurisdictions that deliberately disarmed uh, formerly enslaved people as a means of ensuring that they could more easily be subjugated. Um, and so this is a recurrent theme in, in history uh, that subjugated communities are disarmed at the time that they are also subject to genocide. Um, so, um, but it is also a question of scale and technology. When you look at the kind of militarized technology that has become popularized uh, as, for instance, reclassified as sporting goods. The fact that in the United States, there are places that sell AR-15s. Have at, a bazooka at, in your backyard. Exactly. Like people need that as uh, a tool of recreation or something like that. So reclassifying military grade weapons as recreational items is part of this narrative of normalizing firearm violence and, and, and making those technologies more widely available to citizens is part of the mass militarization of our culture. And what I said about history and the mobilization of that history in the present, the stories of disarmament of subjugated populations is also a way that the gun rights lobby can say, well, of course, if the government takes our guns, this is just a way for the government to subjugate us. And it's not accurate because it isn't the same as what happened um, in the Armenian genocide. It's not the same as that. This isn't about the government stealing people's guns so that people can more easily be subjugated or killed. Um, it's about removing these military tools out of the hands of civilians um, in the interest of mitigating those kinds of mass incidents that you were talking about before. Right. And also the mentally ill. And nobody who is mentally ill should have a lethal weapon. It just, uh, it's just, it's counterintuitive to have somebody with a lethal weapon who has the ability to kill. I would say even more so than that, my concern would be people who have perpetrated violent crimes before. So for instance, yes. back to our conversation about intimate partner and family violence, uh, more states are starting to pass what they call ERPOs, emergency risk protection orders, which can remove firearms from people who have for instance, been convicted of intimate partner violence, because one of the one of the trends of mass shootings in the United States is that many of them are perpetrated by men who have in the past committed family or intimate partner violence. So there's a pattern mm -hmm. of people who aren't they're not necessarily mentally ill, but they do have this proclivity. Propensity for violence. for violence, yes. Right. And so I think that's part of the puzzle here is that if we do want to take the hands out of the people most likely to perpetrate violence, we need to be willing to take firearms away from these disproportionately white, 
male um, people who have been involved in family and domestic violence and take their guns away, even if it is temporarily until they can get the kind of help and support they need. We also need to be ready to take firearms away from people who could be threats to themselves because we do have a widespread epidemic of suicide in this nation, including um, people of all generations, increasingly young people. Teenagers are getting a hold of family guns that have not been stored adequately and using them to end their lives. And this we saw an uptick too in mm -hmm. suicide uh, during the pandemic and the lockdowns. So if, 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 if a felon can lose his right to vote, he should be able to lose his right to bear arms, correct? Well, maybe. I'm not so sure about that because here's why. Given that our nation is one that uh, the criminal justice system has always been stacked against especially people of color, those people most likely to be branded as felons tend also to be disproportionately people of color and especially men. And so when you look at, for instance, Michelle Alexander wrote that wonderful book called The New Jim Crow, which is about the disenfranchisement of, of felons, um, meaning that even people who serve their time could have their right to vote taken away from them. One of the things she showed was that the people who are most often too labeled as felons and to serve time for felonies are going to be people of color. And so I want to be mindful of the fact that that category of felon is a complex category that we really need to grapple with and try to pry it apart. Just like the category that we hear over and over and over again in the law and um, from our elected officials and also from the NRA, the idea of the law-abiding citizen. Who is that law-abiding citizen? When we think about the armed citizen being the law-abiding citizen, well, I find that sometimes those law-abiding citizens, especially when we look at those people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, many of whom identify as, quote, law-abiding citizens with guns who are trying to, quote, protect their government, they were using violence, and, and yet they, there may be very few of them really truly held accountable for it. Certainly the former president hasn't been held accountable for what happened on January 6th, that he helped foment that insurrection. So I think what I would caution people on when we think about uh, disarming felons is that that category of felon is a problematic category um, in the United States. And when I think about ERPOs or emergency risk protection orders, one of the things they can do is instead of criminalizing people, they're using civil law to try to take firearms away from groups of people who are statistically most likely to perpetrate violence, especially family and intimate partner violence. Um, and it does it without creating more felons. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, and of course, background checks. And background Maybe. checks. Yeah. And background checks, absolutely. I mean, and I think the thing about background checks is that that is something that is so, the majority of Americans support background checks. <laughs> the majority of firearm owners support universal background checks. And yet the power and the strength of the firearm lobby, not just the NRA, but its allies, uh, its corporate allies, as well as its legislative allies, it's so powerful as to overwhelm and transcend 
the majority voice that says in our nation over and over again that absolutely we should have universal background checks. Yes, um, and so then absolutely. close the gun, the gun uh, loophole, uh, purchasing it, purchasing. Yeah, absolutely, and it that shows. That is just to say that um, what I was saying before about the fact that we, you know, the FBI tracks only the background checks that are conducted through licensed firearm dealers, that leaves all these other gun purchases without background checks from gun shows, like you mentioned, but also unlicensed, you know, transactions that happen on Craigslist, or if you sell a your neighbor a gun or whatever. Um, and we really literally have no idea how many of those transactions are happening in a given year. So when we look at, for instance, the gun surge of 2020, we don't really know how many guns changed hands uh, during that year. We, we only know that the federal background checks for licensed firearm dealers was exponential, that those numbers were exponential compared to um, any other time. So uh, absolutely, uh, figuring out a way to create a system where we are doing background checks and also where we're tabulating where the guns are going, who has them. Um, and this is something that the NRA and allies are very much against because they believe in uh, a selectively unfettered right to firearms. They believe the Second Amendment is about a, an uh, unfettered right to have and to bear firearms, including in self-defense. Um, even though that right is not upheld evenly, as we see in instances like with Philando Castile, who was a licensed gun owner who was shot and killed uh, by a police officer who suspected him of um, possibly being a threat. Um, because Philando Castile was a black man. Um, and in this nation, blackness and black masculinity in particular is seen as being a pervasive threat. So um, all of this, all of this comes together in the issue of self-defensive violence. Who has a right to defend themselves? Who has a right to carry a firearm in self-defense or family defense? You know what I'm wondering, um, the white population in a few years is not going to be the majority population. And so with these stand your ground laws that were put in place to protect white males, what's going to happen then? How will the, will the tables be turned? I'm wondering, where will this all be going? This is such a good question because what you're asking gets at the heart of how white supremacy operates. And so what I want to say is, and as, as you know, as a lawyer, the law is facially neutral. Our, our laws don't designate race um, or sex. And in fact, when you read the stay in your ground codes themselves, they're facially neutral. Race and gender neutral. Yeah. And so it's easy to believe when you read them that they protect every law abiding citizen's right to defend themselves with, self, with, with lethal self-defense if they're reasonably uh, in fear for their lives. And now, regardless of, of your identity, when you read a code like that, you think it speaks to you. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why stand your ground laws are continuing to spread across the states. This is not to say that everybody supports them. I think especially people of color are critical of stand your ground laws because they understand that an, an ostensibly neutral law can be weaponized against especially people of color in this nation. And, uh, and, and unarmed people of color. Unarmed people of color, exactly. As we've seen over and over again with police violence. And so to your question, and it really is a, a really interesting question to think about what happens as our population pivots to where whiteness is no longer a majority numerically, yet white supremacy and the logical architecture of white supremacy is so incredibly powerful that my worry is staying your ground laws will remain in part because so many people see them as their pathway to protect themselves until they discover that they're excluded. And I think about all these cases like, like the one with um, Marissa Alexander in Florida. And that was, uh, you know, she defended herself after the Florida stand your ground law was instated. She shot a warning shot. So she didn't even shoot anybody. She didn't harm anybody but she used her gun to protect herself from an attack by her estranged spouse. And she ended up going to prison. And for shooting in the air? For shooting in the air, for not harming anybody, but trying to resist an attack. And what this reminds it's absurd. me of, it is absurd, but there's so many cases like that where people try to defend themselves from a logical, reasonable threat and end up going to prison because the standard ground laws were never truly designed to protect women from their largest statistical threat, their own partners or exes or- um, Or black people. Or to protect black people, exactly. There's a case of um, Kai Peterson um, and he was in Georgia, a young trans man who was actually raped and had a positive rape kit proving that he had been violently assaulted. And yet he still went to prison for shooting and killing his attacker. He only just got out of prison last year. So I think he spent eight or nine years in prison for surviving a sexual assault. So and punish so the victim. Punishing the victim. And there are just so many cases like this. I'm trying to keep a record of them because I think we need to continue telling the stories of these individuals for whom stand your ground laws and more generally the laws of uh, justifiable self-defense were never really intended to protect the truly vulnerable against these their their true threats their law their their reasonable threats because the truly vulnerable people in our society are not trusted when they say that they perceived a threat so in other words marissa alexander wasn't trusted that she was fearful in fact, the prosecutor, who was a white woman, said, you weren't fearful, you were angry, which feeds into and draws from the trope of the angry black woman. And so Marissa Alexander, rather than being framed as a woman who was vulnerable and fearful at the time that she shot a warning shot, was framed in the courtroom as having been angry and aggressive. Even when she killed no one. Even when she killed no one. <sighs> I know. 
I know it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And yet, and I, I hate to, you know, I'm typically as a person, I'm an optimist, but when it comes to these stand your ground laws at this point, I'm feeling quite pessimistic about them. And even as our population changes, and even as we, you know, as whiteness tends to become more of a minority, and as more people come to recognize our racial justice issues in this nation, and maybe become more aware of gender justice issues, I would love to believe that we're going to stand up and criticize and demand something better. But I also believe that stand your ground laws were deliberately scripted to speak to that part in every one of us that feels like the law speaks to us, to feel like the law is neutral and that we deserve the right to protect ourselves and our families from deadly threats. So there's something quite logical about appealing to people's individual desire to protect themselves, especially as we become an increasingly gun-owning nation. Well, with that, uh, any final thoughts? I, I wish I could leave us on a happier note. I, I hate to, to, to have sort of this demoralizing message, but I also think it's important that we are aware of what's going on around us. Not only are, uh, is civilian gun ownership exploding in this nation at a time you know, when we're facing so many different uh, you know, emergencies, whether, whether, whether we're talking about the pandemic, when we're talking about the economy or our own political emergency where our democracy itself is under attack. Um, I think we need to be mindful of the ways in which all these different injustices cohere in many ways that sometimes go unquestioned. And so my purpose in writing this book, and I hope it carries forward, is that we need to be questioning our own assumptions with, uh, about self-defense. We need to always be self-critical about who truly is allowed to defend themselves in this nation and what that means for our collective safety and security. And hopefully with, through education, we can uh, educate our jurists as to the dynamics of what is really going on. I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> hope springs eternal. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your enlightening uh, information. Thank you so much for this conversation and your wonderful questions. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Caroline Light, for sharing her research on the evolution of Stand Your Ground statutes across America. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And now you can download our podcasts and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.